the gift of an eternal covenant of marriage is a beautiful one. Lord, we pray that your spirit would flow through this room. Lord, that whatever the concerns of the day are, they would melt into the background. Whatever the grievances or troubles that would plague our minds are, that they would be weeded out of our hearts right now. We begin by exalting your great name, for you are the groom, and we are the bride. And the bride says, come quickly, Lord, into this room. Let it invade it with, with your presence. Come and take over this place. We want to produce for you, Lord, the generations of the righteous. Lord, we honor your great name, and we honor the covenants that you have given us. First and foremost, we honor the fact that you have given us marriage. We love you, and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, all God's people said, Amen. 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 We want to make sure in the back that we've started recording. Amen. That's exciting. Hey, it's good to see you guys. Everybody take a deep breath. Let it out. Do it again. In, in a deep breath. Let it out. Come on, man. You made it here. It is Friday night, and you are here to maximize your marriage. We have a slide that we're going to start off with tonight. This is week two of Maximizing Marriages. This is tonight we're going to speak about the topic of marriage symbolism. We're going to talk through marriage symbolism. Look, if you were meeting with a pastor or an elder privately, uh, you would have already given examples. This is the way we would start off is you'd give examples of your using your Abigail and the ball cards. And you would even give a live demonstration. Mm. Come on now. Somebody say live. live. Full of life. We would have talked about decent proposal. You would have watched the sermon, Decent Proposal. We would have covered the ideas about the entirety of the Bible being like a wedding story. It is a wedding story. We would, we would have even discussed ED and the cure. Yeah, we will. Learning a little biblical biology up in this place. Look, tonight we are going to start off with a group exercise. Come on, we're going to jump right in here tonight. Table leaders. Raise your hand if you're table leaders. Those are the farthest ones from the table from us. Table leaders are going to call on one couple. Thank you. You can put your hands down. You're going to call on one couple to demonstrate the proper way to affirm their spouse's Abigail traits. You're going to get to demonstrate with a live demonstration here. And after that, we're going to have another couple chosen by those same table leaders who are going to give a testimony. Everybody say testimony. Testimony. Of the benefit of sharing your Abigail traits properly this week. It's a testimony of a proper use and sharing of your Abigail traits. So why don't you guys take a few minutes there at your tables. Uh, table leaders, you're picking one couple to demonstrate the proper way to affirm their spouse's Abigail. And then you're going to pick another couple to give a testimony of the benefit of sharing their Abigail traits properly this week. <laughs> Look, it is fun to reinforce the godly design, isn't it? Did you have testimonies at your table? Yeah, we can do this 52 times in a year, or you can do it 365 times in a year. That's entirely up to you. As we uh, move forward tonight, a lot of the concepts 
were first outlined in a message called A Decent Proposal. Obviously, it was in contrast to a movie at the time, Indecent Proposal. Kind of the world's view of marriage versus the biblical view of marriage. Because we haven't had a chance to go through that message with you, and not many of you got a chance to listen to it, uh, this being uh, multiple times through, I wanted to go through a slide with you to give you an idea of the wedding imagery in the Bible. So if we could put that slide up. When you look at this slide, this is just a small sampling of literally hundreds of scriptures that illustrate this same point. So starting at that top left-hand corner, in Exodus 19, God is portrayed as a husband who is literally carrying on eagle's wings his bride, the nation of Israel, to a place where she can be one with him and share in his function. Exodus 19 uses the words of people holy, belonging to the Lord, a priestly nation. In other words, sharing in his substance and sharing in his function. In Jeremiah 3.14, God specifically calls himself the husband of his people. In Exodus, or rather Ezekiel 16, he again mentions himself as entering into the covenant of marriage with his people, even waiting until she was old enough and mature enough to become wed, like something he was longing for. In Hosea 2, he describes the marriage with his people as eternal. In Psalm 45, the great king of Israel, who is God's representative on earth, he obtains a royal bride, and they produce offspring together that is marked by joy and gladness. In Matthew 22, Jesus describes the kingdom in exclusively wedding terms. By the time you get to Matthew 25, God's people are described as being pledged to him to be married, and they're eagerly awaiting the bridegroom, and five of them are exceedingly foolish, and five of them are exceedingly wise. In John 3... John the Immerse refers to Jesus as the bridegroom who has come and spoken to his bride. But also in Revelation 19, it's describing the culmination of the ages, which is marriage of God to his people. So much of the teaching tonight will culminate in Ephesians 5. The reason that we just walk through this kind of wedding imagery with you is Paul understood it. And he's, he's taking his language directly from the narrative of the Tanakh as he goes through his teaching. In fact, if you read Ephesians 5 carefully, he, he seems to be speaking to a husband and to a wife, and then in the middle of it, he says, well, I'm really talking to you about Jesus yeah. and the church. Yeah. But by the way, I'm also talking to you about <laughs> you husbands and you wives. That's because everything that we're teaching tonight is based on one central concept. The Bible is a wedding story where God is the groom and his people are the bride. So that relationship sets all example, is the preeminent example of what a groom should be like and what a bride should be like. But in addition to the wedding imagery and decent proposal, there's a, another LCM message called ED and the Cure. Mm. From that fantastic message, we want to show you a slide that begins to illustrate what it was about. There we have 
Look, the, the wedding imagery was so strong in the Bible that we noticed that even the design of God's dwelling place, as you can see in the image, the, the tabernacle, was related to the biblical biology of a woman, indicating that the groom would meet with his bride in holy sanctity behind the veil. Amen. So let's look at the first married couple in the Bible. Everyone turn to Genesis chapter 2. Come on, somebody say behind the veil when you get there. <laughs> there <laughs> Genesis 2 18 <laughs> oh, goodness alrighty Genesis 2 18 says the Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone I will make a helper suitable for him now we're starting off tonight and we want to just let you know right here in this in this verse in Genesis 2 we discover a giant problem in our understanding of the word helper everybody say helper we have a slide for you that actually we just took from a Merriam-Webster's uh, dictionary online. Definition of helper, one that helps. Wow. Excellent. Thank you. Profound. The yeah. level of education being displayed is extraordinary. <laughs> I was always taught you're never allowed to define a word with the word that you're trying to define, but apparently online it doesn't even matter anymore. That's when Merriam-Webster was still Mr. Webster. Now it's a fluid situation. <laughs> That's right. But beyond that, you can see it's one that helps, thank you very much, especially a relatively unskilled worker Boo. who assists a skilled worker, usually by manual labor. Now, this, this is a giant problem with this word in our language and in our understanding. Yeah. You can see it even more when you start thinking about words that have been utilized as synonyms in our language. Here's some synonyms in English for the word helper. Attendant, servant, auxiliary. Subordinate, mm. underling, employee, and one of my favorites, hireling. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so as you might have guessed, this understanding is completely insufficient. It does not accurately reflect the biblical context of the underlying Hebrew word. It just doesn't at all catch it. See, so to gain a better understanding, we're going to look at a few of the ways that this Hebrew word is used. So in Exodus 18, 2 through 6, it says, After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, My father's God was my helper. He saves me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses, Moses' sons and wives, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So you can see there's a problem here. To start with, Eleazar is a compound word that means God is my help. Secondly, the Hebrew word help shows up more than once in this passage. So how was God a help? Because he was a subordinate? Because he was an auxiliary? Because he was an unskilled manual laborer? How was God a help? He saved Moses from the sword of Pharaoh. 
in this sense, the word in Hebrew that is, is underlying the text, it's, it's not really sufficiently translated to say helper, if helper means those things in English. In fact, it more carries the connotation savior. Well, we see this further in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and in verse 29. Blessed are you, Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and helper and your glorious sword. Your enemies will cower before you and you will tread on their heights. Come on, what a powerful word. This scripture in Deuteronomy uh, has the word helper, and it refers to the Lord empowering his people to be victorious. And this empowerment causes them to be blessed that they have become like the one helping them, exalted above their enemies, both the Lord and his people. Hosea 13.9 says, You are destroyed, Israel, because you are against me, against your helper. Well, everybody say, against your helper. Your helper. See, in the prophets, they're designed to warn your soul. The warning here is that if you demean, diminish, or disparage your helper, it results in your destruction. The word, is view, the word in view is, of course, easer. And biblically speaking, it refers frequently to the Lord, but its first usage is of your spouse. Mm. Amen to that. So why is Eve a helper to Adam? See, to understand that, we're going to need to go back to Genesis 1. Everybody turn with us to Genesis 1, and we're going to look at verse 26. Say Ezer when you get there. Who said geezer? Who did that? My old man, geezer. (laughs) Ezer. Verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Can Adam multiply without his wife? No. 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 All right, so in full confession, I spent most of my single years trying to figure that particular problem out. (laughs) But it's not just the multiplication. How hard would it be to rule over everything by yourself? That... Adam is actually given a calling that he cannot do alone. So in order to display God's goodness, God gives Adam an easer, a helper. This passage appears in the text before Eve is even created. In other words, they were created, both of them, with this one purpose in mind, that both Adam and Eve would need one another to accomplish God's plan for the rest of mankind. Perhaps the reason Adam appeared first and was given tasks first was to allow him to see the need for the essential help that Eve would provide. I see my need. I see my need. Husbands, do you see your need? (laughs) And I know my need. (laughs) Let's meet each other's needs. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> Look, we're, we're going to go turn to Psalm 121 next. And as you're turning there, you should remember that the biblical connotation of the word Ezer is one that saves you from your enemy, empowers you to be victorious, and empowers you to become just like the Lord. So is everybody there at Psalm 121? That's better than the uh, Merriam-Webster's yes. dictionary oh, definition. I, I agree. I agree. Well, my easer is going to read this for us. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Church, we want you to notice something. This is from the psalmist. This is from King David himself. See, but listen how he is speaking of the Lord. The very nature of this psalm sounds very much like a, uh, a girlfriend who's bragging on a boyfriend for all of his uh, brave exploits, for how much he takes care of her, for how much he is watching over and making sure that she's provided for. The Lord said that Eve would be this for Adam. They would not let each other's foot slip. They would watch over each other. They would sacrifice sleep and comfort for each other. They would be the shade at each other's right hand. They would keep each other from all harm. For the second time, they would watch over each other. <laughs> they would assist in the direction and adventures that they would travel. They would do this both now and forevermore. Ezership is an eternal thing. Let's go back to what they said in, in Genesis 1 where it said the Lord would make a helper suitable for Adam. That word suitable in the Hebrew is a preposition that means against. But this shouldn't be understood to mean contrary. Usually when we think of the word against, we think of something fighting against something else. Instead, this word means mutual force in the same direction. Yes? Yeah. Come on, that's an important point. Everybody say mutual force. Mutual, mutual force. force. Mutual force. So we have an illustration for you to see this. Go to our first slide. This slide is a picture of a hallway. Now, here's, here's the thing we want to make an analogy of. Adam's call was analogous to trying to climb this hallway that you see in this picture to the top alone. So if he were alone trying to climb to the top of this hallway, to the very ceiling, how would he do it? Now, here's a clarifier for all you guys out there. Without a ladder, without props, without any other su substances there, how could he do this alone? Well, the next question is pretty reasonable. Would he need help to do it? Yeah. Yes. So here's the whole point. God didn't call Adam alone. And here's the next point. Neither were you. You weren't called to do this alone. Well, before we go to the next slide, I just want to let you guys know that, you know, the Lord called me 
uh, I was born again at the age of 16 in love with Jesus. Uh, years later, two or three years later, the Lord began to reveal to me that I was called by him to achieve a high calling, a high purpose. And I began to, to see this need of having someone to join me in this call. Now, some of you in this room may not realize, but at some point in time, I used to be young. <laughs> My wife has, has always looked eternally young, beautiful. But we want to show you a picture of what we look like somewhere around the age of 22. My God, it's black. It's so black. <laughs> now, don't think that this picture needs some level of enhancement for lighting, hue, and color. That is my actual and true color <laughs> in, that, in that picture. I, if anyone would look at this, they would think that I was born in the house of Abimbola Daramola. But when we see this picture, both Cassidy and I and our friends who were there at the time, they can't help but, but think that at this point, this is when God gave us to each other as easers. We had always climbed to new heights to reach together. But I'll be honest with you, at this point, would you see this picture? We had no idea how to do it. So we have a video to show you guys of our first few years of marriage. Well, really, it's kind of a reenaction of our first few years. So take a look at this. This is us trying to work out how to climb to those heights. Uh, Michael, I'm not too bad. Don't, you're struggle. bringing them up too soon. We need more pressure on our left foot. Your hand is slightly in the shot. Like that pressure between your back. Okay, okay. Yeah. How low should my foot be? Um, oh, right. Okay. Hammy. Okay. Go. So just push. Push real hard and don't go up until we push real hard. Okay. Okay. That's about right. Oh yeah. Oh snap. Okay. Step slowly, step with each other. Step. Oh, So, of course, we're not talking about actually climbing hallways. We had a destiny we were trying to achieve. Oh, you know, that video, obviously, it's not a direct reenactment of me and Cassidy. <laughs> so much has changed with modern analogies because in a marriage analogy, clearly this would have only been a male and female, but in today's society, this was shot on the left coast. And uh, Yeah, we couldn't find a video that actually depicts the biblical model of a man and a woman doing these things. But it, it, did y'all hear uh, in the video, it said more pressure, right? More pressure was needed in order to stabilize their ascent as they climbed and then taking step by step, but in a way that showed mutual force. Well, this is a, is a direct reflection of what's happened in me and Cassie's life, that we had a divine destiny to reach. We both had a calling to complete, and it would take mutual force of Cassidy and I working together to be able to do it. And so 22 years later, we want to show you another image that shows the product of this mutual force and working together. 
Yeah. This is it. You know, this is the, the, the produce, the harvest of God giving me a mezuzah, then giving me an easer to join me in that mezuzah, and a family banner that would then develop and direct how we would build a family and rise to the heights of the call that God gave us and producing offspring that would be part of how we complete it. Yeah. So let's go back to that word of pursuitable, and we talked about it being against, right? And we don't want to mistake this as being against each other because for years we wasted time fighting against each other instead of for each other. Yeah. And when we made that turn, fruit just started to explode from our life. And you Somebody said that's a good word. Amen. Remember, we're fighting for each other. Yeah? Yeah. Look, and this, this, this is a testimony to this ministry and this teaching. Uh, this teaching has produced in our lives the ability to rightly carry out how to be for each other. And putting these very principles into practice has brought us to this point. Uh, we, we were learning how to be for each other, and this allowed us to reach the heights that we were called to. And here's the more important point. It's teaching our daughters how to do the exact same thing. So that now 22 years later, in comparison to the very first image that you saw Cassidy and I stand next to each other, we'll show you the next image. Look at that beautiful woman in that picture. So we may not be as athletic as we were in that first very dark picture. A little lighter as well. <laughs> but we're much more skilled at walking in our mezuzah. Amen? Amen? We know how to hold up our family banner. And we know how to apply mutual force to rise to the heights that God has called us to. Being each other's easer. Yes. Amen. Look, in that process of being for each other. Uh, I see clearly now more than ever, Cassidy, how essential you are to every facet of my life, sweetheart. You are cherished to me. I love who you are and how God's put you in my life. You, my love, are necessary to me in every aspect of my life. I you are. <laughs> I'm glad you know that. You are necessary to me. You're necessary to quiet my wild thoughts and my emotions. You're necessary to lead me, to guide me. And you are unique, outstanding among 10,000. Oh. You, my love, you are my treasured helpmate. There's no one on this planet that I would want more to be my easier than you. Mm. So we want to I want to stand up and show you something here to what it means to be for each other. This is going to be a great visual display. <laughs> so as we are for each other, this is what it looks like. Exactly what we saw in the video. And having that mutual force and even right proportions of pressure and then as we would take step, as I, I lead my wife, I would take a step and she matches my step. And one after another, we ascend into the high calling that God has given us. Do you see how if I'm not giving my all, it would make him unstable? If I just decide to have a grudge or, or give up a little bit or just not put forth the effort, 
It'll make the whole marriage unstable. We have to have mutual force. And likewise, if I'm not walking rightly in my calling, and I begin to slack in my responsibilities as a husband, it removes from her the stability that she needs to be my easer. Well, what this brings us to is that we want to show you the biblical definition of easer in our next slide. Easer. Helping someone accomplish what they could never do alone. This is worth repeating. Let me say it one more time. Helping someone accomplish what they could never do alone. And we say that because... All Semitic languages have similar roots, and the root of this word "ezer" has been translated everything from victorious empowerment to uh, savior to help. It has a variety of meanings, but every level that you look at it, it simply becomes more beautiful. So one other way we learn to look at this through the years is through the eyes of Paleo-Hebrew. Whatever you think about Paleo-Hebrew is irrelevant. It's clear that every letter has an actual association and that that letters uh, relating to each other with their associations often adds a richness and a depth to the word. Here's how this works with Ezer. We have it in our next slide. The letter I-N, when originally drawn by Moses, looks like an I. And so it carries the connotation of watch, know, or shade. The letter Zion looked like a maddox, a gardening tool, which carried the connotation nourish, food, or cut. Whereas Resh looked like the head of something, a human being. So its, its implication is first, top, or beginning. When a husband would read this word from childhood forward, a male would read this word from right to left, it's very possible that his understanding would be something like this watching to nourish her first. How do I be a good easer? How do I do this? I watch to nourish her first. And as a wife, you, yours is first nourishing who you are watching. Yeah, whichever way you approach the word, whether from right to left or left to right, it builds a beautiful picture. Yeah. It's who your eye is on to feed first. Wow, what if we approached every situation in our lives exactly like that? I want you to pick up something here. Ezer is not male or female. In the Bible, both are considered Ezers. It's just that Adam is already there and Eve is being uh, given to him. So both Adam and Eve are Ezers, and they're responsible for each other as an Ezer. Adam was given the call first. Eve, she, she's the one who joined it. We have to help each other in our various functions. So let's consider it in the larger type then. If God is like the groom and the church is like the bride, can you see how there's mutual easership in that relationship? Yeah. God has a redemptive plan, but mankind as his bride, she has a role in that plan. And it requires both applying mutual force to get this done what a beautiful concept here when we're talking about the mutual easership the mutual force that's required look the beauty of the biblical narrative is that we can see clear patterns 
that develop throughout the story. They're repeated over and over in many different ways to help us to understand. But let me ask you a question. You ready? This is crowd response time. Did Israel rescue God from Egypt? No. <laughs> Did you rescue Jesus from the crucifixion? Yeah, see, these are, these are a rhetorical type questions. These are hypothetical questions that the only answer, the only right answer is, of course not. See, but in the biblical narrative, the groom is always seen as rescuing the bride. Come on now. Think about when you have a, you're raising up a little girl. She's looking for a, a knight in shining armor. There's something that God put in there. That's true. In Romans 5, 8, it says, But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, God himself here in this passage, he is the one who's demonstrating. He's the one who's originating. He's the one that's initiating. He's the one that ends up rescuing us. And this is done before. He did this to be able to bring salvation. So while we were still unlovely, unlovable, wretched, while we were still sinners, his sacrifice demonstrated his deep love for us. I just want to put it in very clear and practical terms. Husbands, it is our job to go first. Every time, all the time, it is our job to go first. It is our job as the husbands to initiate. Why? Because we always see that in God the Father towards us. He is the one rescuing us and initiating the process. Look, in 1 John 4, we have another truth that we want to share with you. Pastor, I can't help. I'm going to jump in on yeah. that. It's so easy to agree with that. But just tell me, husbands, am I the only one in the room that knows something should be done? But I'm not going to do it until she changes her attitude. Not the only one, brother. Yeah, I had a feeling. I mean, that's not who we are. That's who we were. Amen. But the, Amen. the thing is, God apportioned to the husband the divine responsibility to initiate right behavior immediately. And it is unmasculine and unholy to sit back and wait until she gets it together and then I will. That is not how God, as a groom, demonstrates his love and his salvation to humanity. And it's not how we run our households. Amen. Amen. Wow. First John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. See, in response to God's great love that was demonstrated through his sacrifice, we are then to respond to him with the same kind of love. Not only is this true when speaking of God's love towards us, but this is true of every wife's. Everybody say, every wife. Every, every wife. wife. Every yeah. wife's reciprocation to the initiation of our husbands. Amen. Come on, this is, I mean, think about this for a second. Come on, ladies. When your husband's sweet to you, come on, he comes and brings you to a maximizing marriage night. <laughs> Unbeknownst to you, he just shows up with something that's just demonstrating his kindness, his love, his affection towards you. It's not your birthday. It's not, it's not a, a holiday. He is coming because he just loves you. The natural, the supernatural response that should happen is you begin to reciprocate that. You understand and you, you see, you're just talking about it. You begin to respond in a way because when God initiates, we are supposed to respond. Ladies and, and husbands in the room, when husbands initiate, the wives are supposed to respond because we see the model, we see the picture of it 
clearly given to us in the Word. I feel a holy moment coming on, Uh Pastor. All right. Husbands, why don't you reach out and initiate right now? Oh, come on, ladies. Now tell me, you got married because you never wanted to have somebody pursue you. You got married because you never wanted affections in your direction. Look, the natural response of the believer is for Abigail to respond to Abigail. The natural response of the world is for Nabal to respond to Nabal. The way that this will always work is the more the husband initiates, the more the wife will want to respond. We'll explain that on an even biological level by the time we get to week five. Yeah, we will. But for this moment, understand something. If your home is not quite what you would like it to be, it starts, say starts, starts with a husband needing to initiate more. Well, my home's not full of the word initiated husband. My home's not full of affection initiated husband. This is our role and God will enable your wife to respond as a victorious, empowering easer. I can assure you it's true. I just want to encourage you wives to reciprocate. When your husband is trying, even if he doesn't quite get it right or it doesn't quite what you thought it would be or any of those kind of things, reciprocate and really enjoy and encourage and you know encourage that in your husband so that he'll want to do that more and more and you'll get better and better at it. See, we're, we want to emphasize this point because, again, as, as pastors already said, it's easy enough to agree with, but uh, we're your pastors. We understand that this is a huge, huge truth that must be instituted in every life. I mean, think about it. Uh, who proposed in your, in, uh, in your engagement process? Okay. Uh, who leaned in for the first kiss? Woo! Oh, okay, okay. I, I see Lena in the background. <laughs> that, uh, I, okay, all right. See, this is, this is fun for us, to, for us to talk about. But if Lena's always the first one to lean in, if she's always the first one, then there is a problem and there's a usurping of the structure and design. Everybody say design. The design that God has for you. Who who should cross the dance floor back in the day? The husband. The husband Husband. should cross the dance floor. See, you are each each other's easer. I'm going to say that again since I didn't do that well. You are each other's easer. But someone is designed to go first. Anything else becomes, it might be an oddity. It might be kind of fun for us to, to, to laugh at the, at the lady who leans forward first in the inaugural time of kissing each other. See, but that's not, you're not designed that way. And when you do that long enough, you find that a husband is no longer leading and a wife is no longer responding. A husband's no longer initiating, always waiting. Always waiting for someone else to go first and always waiting for his wife to go first. See, in a very practical example, it's the, it's the T-Rex arms when you're trying to pay for a bill. Oh, you got it. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Come on, husbands. It's, it's you rolling over in the middle of the night when you have a, a young baby. You hear, you're awake, just as awake as the wife is. I mean, not that that ever happened with us. If I lay here long enough, maybe she'll think that I'm just asleep. 
This is what I've heard. These are stories, <laughs> infamous stories that I've heard. But the Bible example for us is always that the man goes first, is always that the man steps forward and leads in his home, and then the wife's job is to respond. You know, to further comment on that for, <laughs> for just a second, I married a tiger. I meant pastress. Um, and I'm not going to lie, there have been moments where um, in my dreams she went first. Every husband would like to tell the story where she was just uh, so excited about you that she came and found you out. And those are neat oddities. Earlier, Pastor said that that would be the Lena uh, usurping Marlon. The truth is, is, is it's not quite usurping. It's worse than that, and it's not Lena's problem. It would be Marlon's problem because he's abdicating. See, the issue is not that you have a wife who wants to kiss you, that's awesome, or a wife that wants to dance with you, that's awesome. The real issue is when the man does not understand it's his responsibility to demonstrate and go first, yes. and he has a wife that beats him to it, because what happens over time is she gets used to beating him to it, and he gets used to sitting on his folded hands and both resent the relationship because it's outside God's design. Yeah. But this is marriage enrichment. It's, it's time to maximize your marriage. So the way that you get that right is, husband, you're not upset if your wife beats you to something. You're just more inspired and determined to beat her to it the next time. This is what it means to spur one another on to righteousness. Ladies, make it hard for him. I mean, be affectionate. Be quick with the scripture. Go after the very spirit of Christ. And you know what? He'll bring his game. It'll raise. It'll get better. In every possible way, he will become better at leading and you become better at joining him with mutual force in that. Oh, I can share that from a personal testimony standpoint. I was born without game. <laughs> it's probably a good thing because it, it, it kept me safe. But I can tell you that by putting this principle into practice, I got's game. I got's game. So I want to share with you out of James chapter 1. In verse 17, it gives additional insight into God's biblical design of husbands initiating and wives responding. James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. This, the scripture is clearly speaking about the way that God establishes the gravity of love. That he has established a direction that love flows. He loves first. Then we learn to reciprocate. So let's restate what we said earlier. The husband proposes. The husband leans in for the first kiss. The husband crosses the dance floor. We put this all together. The husband initiates. And that therefore follows the biblical design that God desires. And it also sets up for the wife to respond. The one thing that, that God helped me understand in this teaching and put it into practice is that my wife desired to be pursued. She desired for me to initiate. 
And I just had to step up my game in initiating. And you know what happened? She began to respond. So the, there's a gravity of love, right? It flows downhill. And so when Matt is expressing that gravity of love, it's flowing downhill to me. I respond by learning how to reciprocate it in every way. He was lavished with the father's love for about five years before I came along. So I got a great, he got a great head start, which I benefited from. And when I entered into this relationship, I was the recipient of all that love that he had learned from the father. Yeah. It came to me and it taught me how to love him. Yeah. Which, how many of y'all were not raised in a godly household and didn't know how to love right? I didn't know how to love rightly, but he taught me how by demonstrating what he had received from the father. You know, that head start that the Lord gave me five years in, in the Lord. It gave me everything I needed to know how to initiate, and she would respond. Coming to this ministry, putting this teaching into practice, has done nothing but maximize my marriage. And I can proudly say that uh, out of all the disciples that have come and that are, are, are flowing from our lives, my wife is my crowning achievement as a disciple. That with the help of this ministry, my friends on my right and left, that I can look and be proud of what God has done through us and the disciple that God has made her to be for me. What if, uh, what if your wife was saved for 30 years before you? It makes absolutely no difference. The gravity of love is a biblically, universally true principle. It, it makes absolutely no difference if you have a thousand years on your spouse the way God designed this to flow is that we learn to love because he first loved us. Amen. And that every wife learns to respond to her husband based on her husband demonstrating it through sacrificial love. So you may have started ahead of your husband, but God will place him ahead of you in this if he will work at it. So the goal is not to sit back and say, well, whoever came in first should yeah. know more and do better. The actual goal is to embrace God's design. And it's not just true between a husband and wife. Notice this in this next passage. Ephesians 6, 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Children, obey your parents. Does that seem incomplete to anybody? Of course not, because you're all parents. <laughs> if we were teaching this to teenagers, they, they would want to know where the other half of the verse is. The answer is it's not there. Nowhere in the Bible are parents told that they must love their children. Is that surprising to anybody in this room? Children are told to obey their parents throughout the scripture, but parents are not repeatedly exhorted to love their children. Do you know why? Because it's a universally true principle. It is the gravity of love that parents naturally love their infants. It takes something sick, twisted, and demonic to be in the kind of stage that society is in now where they don't naturally love. Their, even an alligator naturally loves its young. It will fight to protect it. You have to find some dinosaur-like people, hard-hearted, to not love their children. So what the Bible is assuming in this passage is that love naturally flows downhill, but has to be taught to move back up. So I have children in this room that are born in this ministry. I have grandchildren 
in this room that are born in this ministry. I watched my wife give birth to children, change those diapers, feed those, those mouths, and you know what? The kids were not particularly loving. They filled their diaper. We changed their diapers. They filled them again, almost with no concern for how much work that was for us. We fed them. They tried to take the spoon from us and smear it all over their face. They flung it across the room, almost as if they did not notice what we were trying to do for them. About 18 years of demonstrating this principle, you live for the moment that they have learned supernaturally to reciprocate it. See, you can see it in the next stage. It's harder to see between a husband and wife. It's easy to see between Jesus and the bride of Christ. But it's also easy to see between a father and mother and their children, isn't it? Love naturally flows down hill and it has to in fact we have a video just to help you understand that and the sound is gone so that's good it's all right we can narrate it think of that top one as the presence of the father and the second as the earthly father and the third as the mother and the fourth as the child Love is meant to flow from his throne in the order that he designed it, which we'll talk more about next week. And the hope is that it so fills that bottom bucket. Now, any engineers in the room? Is this actually an endless supply of water or is something going on behind the scenes? Yeah, that bottom bucket is ultimately reciprocating all the way back to the top. That is the goal of this process. How does a child learn to love? He watches mom. How does mom learn to love? Dad better set the example. Well, how does dad learn to love? He is watching his heavenly father. And what begins to happen through the generations is something supernatural goes on. The children begin to love the father from whom it all started. And this cycle of love flowing downhill and learning to reciprocate, it changes whole family lines. But husbands, where is it supposed to start? Amen. Amen. Let's all turn to Exodus chapter 6 together. Exodus chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 6. Maximize. Maximize. Okay. Exodus 6, 6 through 8 says... Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with my with uplifted hands to give to Abram, Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. A beautiful passage here. 
Because Judaism understands that the Bible is, in fact, a wedding story and that God has proposed marriage to Israel. This singular passage right here that we just read to you has informed every Orthodox Jewish engagement all the way back to the days of Moses. See, it's more than just a picture. It's actually a, a design that God has given. We see God progressively demonstrating his love in each of the four promises and their fulfillment. We want to show you what this is. The very first thing says, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. That idea of bringing you out. This is what God did for Israel. He brought them out and this is what husbands are supposed to do for their wives. To bring out from any other authority. If you're like Christy and me. We started out and Christy lived in her parents' home until she came and began and got married to me and lived in my home. I literally took her from outside of the un underneath her parental authority and she became and part of my life and I became the primary authority for her and in every way in her life. Yeah. And she responds by honoring the right authority in her life and taking his name. I left from being Christy Paroli and I took the name and the honor of taking the name, and now I'm Christy Sutherland and walking under his name. Amen. Yeah, that's a beautiful part of this. Yeah. Don't let the modern thought here that, that, that dissuade you from understanding what this is. To take the name, to take the reputation and the character of somebody is an incredible picture of the design. It shows you the design of God here. If you have to hyphenate your last name, yeah. then you hyphenated your marriage. Ooh. Wow. See... We're not trying to teach you to dishonor the parental relationship. You can still honor that, but honoring that doesn't mean that you obey that. Your marriage becomes the primary responsibility of the couple. It becomes the primary authority of the husband, and that's part of what it means to bring out from any parental or any other authority that someone may be under. This is now the authority structure because it is the design of God. Man, somebody say that's a good word. Well, the second promise listed in this passage is the promise to free you. This was God's promise to free the nation of Israel from the slavery of the Egyptians. Well, what this looks like in a marriage covenant is that it's the promise of a husband to free his wife of an incomplete and single life. No longer going to be in that slavery of sleeping alone, excluded from events because you don't have a spouse with you. And the list goes on, but it's, it's clear that the husband initiates in this process and the, the, the bride reciprocates. Amen. So how she reciprocates is that she joins him by completing him and eliminating his single life. Amen. Amen. Oh, man. You know what this looks like in a marriage? When your interests merge into one. When I was single, I did not watch Gilmore Girls. But now, now that I have freed, initiating, freeing my wife and her freeing me, I merge my interests with hers and I actually watch Gilmore Girls with her. And he says they talk too much. And I never watched war movies, but now I do and I actually enjoy them. <laughs> You see, what we, what we have here is that Jesus freed us and he has provided the opportunity for me to initiate that freedom to her and her to reciprocate it back to me. 
These are things that God demonstrated to a nation, and the nation understood that it was the husband's job to initiate in a home. And after he goes through bring you out and free you, he says, I'll redeem you with mighty acts of judgment. These, these are reflected not only in the Passover, but even in the crucifixion. These are acts of personal sacrifice because you value your wife. Amen. He purchases or redeems or shows his sacrificial love to her through difficult things. Early on in marriage, I was just like some uh, young marriages in this church. I couldn't wait to spend my paycheck on something that I wanted. I mean, that's why I'm working. It's so that I can buy what I want. Except that my life was now about sacrifice for another. Not buying a 27-ounce California framing hammer made by Eastwing was the best decision that I ever made. Because how could I get that tool and put it in my toolbox knowing that my wife needed a new dress see in little ways every day putting her needs before your own these acts of redemption it is demonstrating a gravity and a direction of love that she can't help but respond to yeah no i i couldn't help but respond to um i'm just going to be on a personal note eric lavished me with love when we first got married and he still does to this day. And it gives me a confidence and a security to do things and to speak out and say things because he lavishes and is so sacrificial. Uh, our note says that she wants to respond in the exact same way with sacrifice. It makes me want to sacrifice in every area that uh, the Lord is asking us because he's so faithful to sacrifice and lavish me with love. It makes that relationship so effortless and so easy. God establishes the pattern in the Bible, and men are to look into that pattern and demonstrate it in their lives. So what kind of husband would put himself before his family? What, what kind of mother would purchase something for herself while her kids were starving? The gravity of love demands of us that we put those in our care before us. That's a principle that, that we have to, listen, I, it's a married class and I just feel completely liberated. I didn't do this for any reason other than I was moved by the father. But the fact that I got to give her a new dress in our first Christmas also meant I got to take it off. It was amazing, okay? You have no idea the way in which demonstrating sacrificial love will inspire, inspire, inspire her to reciprocate. It cannot be done for secondary gain. It cannot be done for a predicted outcome. It has to be done because it is the right thing to do. And then you trust that the Lord will work in the situation where you have acted righteously. Jesus Christ purchased your redemption at his own expense. And what does that make you want to do? Love him like he has loved yeah. you. Amen. That is a biblical universal truth. And it turns into a lifestyle that a couple shares. Yeah. 
and that the children see. You'll watch your older children sacrificing for the benefit of your younger children. That's when this is done well. And I know that you will. We're maximizing our marriages. Can you guys just feel the freedom that's coming into your soul as you're being reminded, as you're being instructed, as this is put out before you again? That God, he promises. He says, I am the Lord. He gives his name at the beginning and ending of these seven things that, that he says, and I will. We're focusing on the four things that he says here that, that is related to the Jewish wedding, to the understanding of what it is. He's going to bring you out. He's going to free you. He's going to redeem you with sacrifice. And that leads to, to the fourth I will statement here. I will take you to be with me. Oh, somebody should say amen to that. This is the goal. This is what the Bible is. The Bible is a wedding narrative that's aimed at union. It is aimed at two becoming one. Two separate individuals who now have merged their life because they've been brought out, they've been freed, they've been redeemed, and now there is a union that they get to be with each other. God demonstrated this to us first, and we get to respond to this, and, and it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. She responds by expressing desire to be one with him. Yeah, be one with him in every possible way. It's the joining of your lives together. It's not only intimacy in a physical realm. It is intimacy in every possible way. It's two lives that have merged and their interests are the same. They're joining the same. And let me, let me address one point here while you're doing this. When you really take this to heart, when you really understand the design that's in this, do you know what happens to these two people? As they become one, they begin to imitate the strengths that they see in the other person. They become stronger in the areas. It's no longer, well, I'm good at this and you're good at this, so we'll go to our separate corners. See, I've taken you to be with me. Those things that she was good at, I am now becoming good at. And vice versa, there is a union as you join your lives together, and it's something that far exceeds any other thought that you can have because it is the design of God for each and every person. Take me home tonight. I don't want to let you go till you see the light. Look, the whole purpose of God calling his people is that he wants to be with them. Yeah. Now, we didn't plan to do this, but I can't help it. Uh, there's a lot we've said tonight that certainly <laughs> we did not agree to. And uh, you can look at a marriage, certainly none in this room. And you can tell where they have a problem in these four cups. Would she rather call her mom or dad and, and get direction? Well, how, it's, it's, it's almost like you need to go home, drink a cup, and get this right. W would, would she or he, would he rather hang out with his buddies after work? Well, it's, it's almost like you need to go home, drink two cups, and get this right. Would... Would either of them put their own needs before the other? Well, you got a three-cup problem, buddy. Okay. Are you not with each other? You live in the same house, but you don't live in the same activities. Well, you, you got a full-blown four-cup problem. Okay. Um, 
the goal is not to illustrate problems for you. As we illustrate the truth, you'll figure out where the problems are. Do you know where this actually comes from? This Exodus 6 passage is the basis for the Seder uh, or Pesach meal. Four cups of wine occur in every Seder meal. And actually, uh, the oldest member of, of the family holds up a cup and the whole family joins to celebrate when they were brought out from under the authority of the Egyptians. Then the second cup, when they celebrate being freed from that incomplete wasting lifestyle. The third cup, the way in which they had been redeemed by God's mighty hand. And the fourth cup, they celebrated that God was taking them to be his people. But it's not just a Passover meal. Every communion that there has ever been, even when it was not understood, was done in this exact principle. The Bible is a wedding story. And the Bible's uh, last supper is at a Passover. So they had four cups on the table because they're Jews. And Jesus picked up the third cup and said, this is my blood. And in it, you have redemption from sins. Do you hear how that relates to the Passover? It relates to a groom that is sacrificially purchasing the love of his bride. Yeah. And he goes one further. He says, the fourth cup you will not drink of until we do it together in the kingdom when we physically have become one. This gives her the chance to respond after she sees him drink the third cup, the cup of suffering and the cup of redemption. We are in the time period where we, the bride, join in that same attitude of suffering so that in Revelation 19, he does take us to be one with him in the kingdom. Well, you can examine your own marriage and look at the four cups and determine where changes need to be made. Tonight, what we would really like to do is another group activity. And because we have varied interest in the room and varied needs in the room, we have on your table sparkling cider. And we have on your table wine. We want you to pour a glass of whatever your beverage of choice is. And husband, we want you to look your wife in the eye and say, I am so glad that I brought you out from under any other authority. We want wife, you to respond, it was the best day of my life. Then, husband, it is my endeavor to free you from any entanglement other than God's will. Wife, it is my joy to be freed with you. Husband, I will continue to redeem you in sacrificial love through every action. Wife, it is my joy to join you in these sacrifices. Husband, it is my great joy to take you to be with me. Wife, come take me. <laughs> Group activity, 10 minutes.
So a billion years ago when the dinosaurs were roaming the earth and killing and eating and the environmentalist, um, I was once a young man. And uh, I first had to go to a guy named Fred Hull and say, sir, I would like to ask for your permission for your daughter's hand in marriage. Much to my surprise, because Fred was a little hard of hearing, he said, I would be proud to have you as a son. I said, Fred, did you understand the question? <laughs> and then I got on a knee just like this. And I said, sweetheart, I have no idea how we'll make a living. I don't know where we'll go or what we'll do. But the Lord's made his will clear to me, and I can assure you, There'll never be a day in our life where we are willingly outside of his will again. Will you marry me? She said yes. I was as surprised as when Fred said yes. <laughs> but that's not what this would have looked like in a Jewish setting. In a Jewish setting, I would have shown up outside their house with a glass of wine. I know that's shocking to those of you with Baptist backgrounds, but it is how it was done. And I would walk to her and she would walk to me. We would join arms like this. And I would say to her, I will bring you out of your parents' home. And more than bring you out, I will free you from your single way of life. I will redeem you for the rest of our lives with sacrificial acts and I will take you to be with me. If she accepted, then while our hands were joined, she would drink from my cup. To drink from a cup in the Bible is an indication of sharing one another's faith. If I was pleased with her acceptance, I would drink from the cup. When our Lord and Savior held up a cup and said, in this cup is my blood given to you for redemption and those standing there that are the bride of Christ drank from that cup they were pledging to share his fate that is what communion is but it's also what marriage is the Bible begins and ends in a manner of speaking with a glass of wine and the reason for that is it begins and ends with a demonstration of what God's plan is and then a willingness to share in that cup. That will illuminate many biblical passages for you, but tonight what we want it to do is illuminate for you the idea that, husband, it is your job to initiate that vision. Amen. It is your job to demonstrate that action. Wife, it is your job to encourage, inspire, by, be inspired by that and enthusiastically join in the process. And then the two of you leaning on one another, applying mutual force towards that goal will rise to heights that you couldn't any other way. This is the meaning of the concept easer. It's not that they help you build the deck. It's, it's not that they changed the flat tire for you on a rainy day. It is 
that they empower you and you empower them to accomplish what could never be done without each other. Amen. You have a joint call, one cup to drink, that cannot be done as individuals and can be done as a united couple in Christ. Amen. That is the point. Amen. Well, we want to bring you to a scripture that we've been heading towards in this entire teaching. Let's go to Exodus chapter 19. We're going to start with verse 4. There you go. Say maximize when you get there. Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. This passage is the Lord speaking to the nation of Israel and speaking of his relationship with them. But there's two main points that we're to understand from this passage. There's two main points are the words exclusivity and treasured. Do you hear this in, in this passage? I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. You are mine and you are none other. And then you will be my treasured possession. Uh, what this looks like in a marriage is that you are each other's best friend. And one of the more, more powerful elements of that that is transformed and strengthened uh, my marriage with Cassidy is that that exclusivity of having a best friend that every night and every morning I share with her and she shares with me the most intimate details of what's going on in our lives, in our heart, in our mind. We are the most vulnerable with each other than any other relationship that there is. The, the, that's what a, a best friend really is. And then on addition to that, I look at Cassidy and I see that she is my treasured possession, the most valuable object on planet Earth that I seek to pour my life into and that she is worth every bit of the sacrifice for me to cultivate and to bring her to be with me. Hey, consider for just a second if what they said was not true. Uh, all right, ladies, do not raise your hand. This is an inside thought kind of thing. How have you felt when you were the last to find out about something important happening and you realized that your husband told everybody but you? Husbands, how does it feel when you find out that your wife's girlfriends know things that you thought only you and your wife knew? See, these are violations of the marriage principle, period. It's a one, two, three, four cup problem. And the way that you fix that is you go back to the original design. Amen. And husband, it starts with, it starts with you. If you initiate this, I promise God made her in a way that she wants to respond to it. No matter what she might say sitting at the table right now, 
There is nothing that your wife wants more than to be your closest confidant, advisor, help, friend. That's why she married you. I know you thought it was because you were hot. That was only part of the reason. So I want to talk to you mothers for a minute. Um, a lot of you are young moms, and you're very busy. You have a lot on your task list. But marriage is your primary responsibility. It's your primary relationship. Okay, so yes, we have a lot to do. We have a lot of mouths to feed, a lot of things to wipe up. But you, you prioritizing your relationship with your husband will provide for your children what they need. Okay, a lot of times we get very focused looking down and picking up the Cheerios and the blocks and all of that. Lift your eyes up and look at your husband and prioritize that relationship. That will give your children everything they need. Don't neglect that because I used to tell Matt early on in our marriage, he'd come home and I was just like tired of being touched all day. You know, you have kids hanging off of you and all of this. Stuff. It's like, oh, I just I can't handle. No, you can and you must. It is your primary relationship. Look, when a, a husband and wife are completely united, then the rest of the home is completely united. That I have watched this transform my marriage. And that whether it be whenever I come home, that we're going to talk, where I'm going to share with her the intimate details of my day and likewise, or late at night or first thing in the morning. This is a necessity for us husbands to initiate that process. This will bring about a the, the unity between the husband and wife as she reciprocates, and you will see each other as a completely united treasure possession with exclusivity. One more thing I want to mention, too. When we're talking about being a treasured possession, sometimes there's this feeling like I can't say that to my husband. I can't be honest with him, and that's a lie from the enemy. You must be honest with him. He treasures you, you treasure him, and how you build that relationship and how you get closer is by being vulnerable and saying those things. Amen. I just want to say something real quick to what Cass mentioned just a minute ago. Your mo you moms to encourage you. Your kids grow up. They move out. That's what I'm, I'm dealing with right now. I'm fixing to have one that's driving. And I'm realizing I'm going to... you got a bunch with kids. I just mean my last one will be driving. I'm sorry. And the thing is, is that he and I are still best friends, you know, through having five kids and raising all other kind of kids and having everything go on, we did that together. And so now that our kids are getting older, moving out, and we only have one left that's in the house, when she moves out, I'm completely confident that he and I will be even stronger than we've ever been yeah, yeah. because we've done that together. So if you define your life by the fact that you use 732 wet wipes today and you begin to derive your soul value from that and you say, I don't have time for anything else, I, there's nothing left, this is just what there is, then what happens when you're past the wet wipe stage? Okay, everything flows from the relationship with your husband. Husband, everything flows from you as you demonstrate it and she reciprocates yeah. and then something happens those little ones they grow up they move out and they're still looking back at mom and dad as the example of what a united godly uh healthy couple looks like uh 
It's important when we grow through the stages of parenting that your marriage is the foundation for it. Do not warp your marriage to be defined by, well, she's, she's taking care of the kids and I'm going to work and that's just life right now. No, it's not. Life is what you do when you're not taking care of the kids yeah. and not at work. Right. Life is when you've waited for every other person in the house to go to sleep and it's just you and her. Yeah. That's, that's life is your private prayer time together. Life is your private playtime together. Life is not your task in your day. Those are temporary. Your relationship with each other is eternal. Yeah. Uh, Another thing too, Eric and I, and I know it's not always possible, but as much as I could get up with him in the morning, regardless of what was taking place for us to have time before he left to go to work, and I waited till he got home and he went to bed, we always made sure that we were on the same schedules. We tried to interweave our lives with the same TV shows or the same events or anything that was going on because I was pulled you know, with so many kids and everything else going on. He had ministry. We always had things pulling at us, but we fight to spend that quality time together because these, this is the treasured possession. This is what we have. The goal of marriage is to be with one another, Amen. period. Anything that threatens that goal, you need to modify your attitude or your application. Because at the end of the day, you will be stuck with each other. And you want to have cultivated, cultivate me, baby. You want to have cultivated that marriage so that it's the best thing in your life. Anybody have teenagers in here? Raise your hand if you've got a teenager. Okay, from time to time, your teenagers are are not going to do right. Okay, that's that's just I'm sorry if that feels prophetic to you. It's true. But your marriage can always be right. And it's how you survive their teenage years. <laughs> Somebody say that is so good. So good. Not only are you getting the deep revelation of the design of God, you're hearing the most practical applications of it. Come on, speaking of that, let's all turn to Ephesians chapter five together. Ephesians chapter five. We're going to start in verse twenty two. Say maximize when you get there. <laughs> Ephesians five twenty two through 33. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, Each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife 
must respect her husband. I'm going to give you a quick group exercise here, and here's what your job is. You have on your table some husband's job descriptions and a wife one uh, and, a, and a category also for the wives, the wives' jobs description. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to take just about three or four minutes, and you're going to find as many components of your job description as possible from the passage that Christy and I just read. From Ephesians 5, verses 23, 22 through 33, you're going to find as many components of your job description as possible, and you're going to fill out the sheets that are there on your table. All right, all right. Now, I, I can see that you are feverishly writing. Uh, you'll be happy to know you do not have to turn these in. We thought, we thought very seriously about collecting them and then reading them. But we want to maximize marriage <laughs> and not minimize anyone in a marriage. So we thought that we would, would do this. In the years that we've been teaching this, the years we've been looking at this, and this was the key passage that helped us understand the whole Bible is a wedding story. Paul says it in this passage. And that that wedding story is the archetype, the progenitor of all of our relationships and what they're supposed to look like. We noticed something else that we started calling job descriptions written in the word. So we want to put them on a screen, and um, as they're on the screen. It says, wife's job description, number one, is to submit. I, I just want to tell you all, I actually have learned to love that word. I know in our society, everyone hates that word as women. I actually love it because I find such joy from Jesus and from the Lord in submitting to my husband's leadership. And number two is respect. I joyfully respect his leading and I'm, well, as I'm submitting to him. And I have just this freedom that comes over me that I know that the Lord is going to speak to my husband and he's going to guide our family and it's going to be really, really good. And I can rest and have peace in that. To put some practicality to that, uh, you have to imagine that Jenna and I are out in that white F-450 and we're going down the road and maybe she knows where we're supposed to be going and I don't. The problem is, is I'm the one holding the steering wheel. And in constant um, insecurity about the direction we're going is going to cause me to hesitate in an intersection and we're going we're gonna to get hit. But when she says, hey, I'm so glad you're driving. Let me know any way I can help you. You know, and I say, hey, Jen, tell me what is two turns ahead, which we do all of the time in the trailer. Not only is it a fun process, it's easier for her to help give me direction when submission is already there. Well, I'm not fighting for it. It's just there. And I've got to tell you, guys, don't be insecure about this. I'm often wrong. It's okay because she'll follow me even when I'm wrong as long as it's not sinful which means it's easy for us both to get back on track. Amen. When it breaks down into a full-blown fight because she said it's a right-hand turn and I didn't take the right-hand turn and you never respect me and all that, we'd both just get lost together and waste a lot of time 
and a lot of energy. Whatever you do, make it your joy to follow your husband. Amen. Now, I don't know what you got on your job description. From the verses that address the female at the very beginning, you only get the word submit. But Paul follows it all up at the end of the passage with, and she must respect her husband. Because there's a big difference in doing something because you were told to and God is going to make you in doing it because you have great respect for the person that you have been joined to as an easer and they an easer to you. And it takes both of those things for this to work correctly. Uh, he needs you to both follow him and respect the position that God's put him in. He needs that. I'm going to tell you a secret. You need it too. If you, if you feel like you married a bad leader and that's all you do is express that, then it will be a self-fulfilling prophecy because he needs you to follow him and show a joyful respect to become the leader that he's called. To. You can only climb this hallway together. Equally mutual force. Amen. Now, did anybody notice the husband's job description <laughs> yeah a lot of times when we've done this counseling through the years you know the husband is like uh just falling under the table and there, there's a reason for that you know i knew that the lord spoke to me the only thing that I knew more than that was I loved the way she was shaped. I loved the way she talked. I loved the way she walked. I loved the way she smelled. I, there was a strong physical attraction, and God spoke to me. But I didn't really know that this is what I was supposed to be doing. Have you ever been on a job where your job description was presented to you about five years after you're doing the job? <laughs> Going through this, and I want to encourage all of you to take it home and go through it. Wives, have some respect for the fact that he's been given an impossible job. Husbands, have some respect for the fact that Jesus has demonstrated this perfectly and you are called to be perfect. We don't just love our wives. We have to love our wives as Christ loves the church. Well, good thing the standard's not that high, right? Number two, give yourself up for her, okay? You buy a bass boat when the family needs something else, you're an idiot, okay? It's really that simple, but I know that's not who you are. Uh, a husband's job is to give himself up for his wife, okay? You know what that'll mean? She will want to join you in that, and life becomes a blessing. How about, how about number three? Does somebody want to read out number three really loudly? How do you do that? Well, you're the pastor of your home. You're supposed to teach. You're supposed to encourage. Anything that you would expect a pastor to do for you or for your home was your job in your home a long time before you ever met your pastor. In fact, it was your job from the moment you said, I do. Number four, cleanse her. Okay? When she makes a mistake, it's not your job to put it on Facebook. It's not your job to make it the butt of a joke with your friends. It's not your job to make it her defining characteristic. It is your job to cleanse her from it. Okay? 
in my house, if my wife speaks negatively about herself, I tell her, you keep talking about my wife in that way and we're going to fight. <laughs> That's not who you are. You know why? It's a reflection of me. Okay, and now we're going deeply personal and probably shouldn't, but we're doing it. If you're walking through the store and your wife's like, oh, my God, did you see that girl? I bet you want a girl with legs like that. I am personally offended by it. And the reason that I'm personally offended by it is if my wife is insecure, it's because I did not cleanse her of that insecurity. I did not work to make her holy. If your wife is obsessed, would we'll just get out there with it with a boob job. Something's wrong with you, husband, not her. Yeah. Okay. This is our job description. Hey, you ought to make your wife the most secure woman on the planet. How do you do all of this? You wash her with the word. Okay. Other areas in your light are, are, are life are light. Maybe you maybe you don't do a great job providing money. Maybe maybe you are just a terrible craftsman. Maybe you can't drive without getting in a car wreck or maybe I, I don't know what it is that you can't do but I know that there is something you can do and it will make every other thing in your life work right wash your wife with the word there should never be a day that goes by that you are not sharing the word with your wife do you know what she'll want to do share the word with you she'll be wanting to submit and joyfully respecting you as you're doing that my wife has given me the best words I've ever received in my life, but they have always come after an intense season of me pouring the word into her. Okay. You can follow these through. I just want to point out number six, present her to yourself. It is not your wife's job to come and put her best foot forward and try to catch your attention. You are to present her to yourself and that without stain. Okay. Not, not, not with wrinkle, no, no blemish of any kind. She is to be in your eyes blameless. How many of you believe in the concept of credited righteousness? Okay, well, if you're the bride of Christ and he has credited you with righteousness, what are you doing with her? Crediting her with righteousness and then helping her become what you say she is. Now, you cannot expect Jesus to do that for you and then you choke somebody that you think owes you uh, a debt okay uh, husbands are you uh, are you sitting up straight okay you have to love her as you love your own body i'm gonna leave all single jokes out of that you have to love her as you love yourself you have to feed her it's your job to feed her it is your job to make sure that you have left family attachments behind and become united to her. Husband, if you show more devotion to your family attachments than you do your wife, don't be surprised when she wants to go home for all of the holidays. You need to go back and examine your cups. Now, having said all of that, how many people are getting married all over the world and have no idea that these are the basic job descriptions? And they're written in the Peshat. They're right there in the word. Uh, we're going to go to Exodus 32 together. Say maximize when you get to Exodus 32. Exodus 32, verse 15. 
Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The table, tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. In the society that Jesus grew up in, a person called Shad Khan worked to arrange a marriage between... Did you say Shaka Khan? Did you say Shaka Khan in church? A Shad Khan. Shad Khan. This person would arrange a marriage between a young groom and a prospective bride. See, Paul uses this language in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says that you were promised to just one groom. Every Shad Khan brokered a contract that laid out the expectations of both the bride and the groom. In Hebrew, this contract is called a ketubah. Do y'all remember that, the word ketubah? And it often had writing on the front and on the back so that there could be no room for modifications. It's filled up, right? So you read about God's ketubah with the people, the tablets inscribed on the front and the back. And you may be surprised that you have a ketubah. Your ketuba, your wedding contract, is your Bible. That living word that's right there in front of you. Look, we discussed so much tonight. But that is what you agreed to the day you were married. We're just bringing it into a greater reality tonight. That your Bible is your ketuba. Turn with us to Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15. And we're going to start in verse 37. Numbers 15, 37 through 38. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corner of your garments with blue cord on each tassel. We just want to remind you that every wedding in Judaism occurs under what is known as a chuppah. It is taken from Exodus 19 and Exodus 20, while Israel was under the canopy of smoke. They were under the canopy of God's presence as God came to marry the people. We want to we show this to you here. This is a tallit. Constructed according to exactly as God said with, with a... Uh, Zitzits on the kanaf, the corners that remind you of the knots that are supposed to remind you of the commandments that are there. Each man was given a tallit. And underneath this tallit, he would bring, he would bring his wife to be with him. One calling, one purpose, one unified reason and design that God had put them together. You find out many times that this tallit was, rid, was worn there. And you find out how many times that healing, and it was a sign of the prayer life. It was a sign of the relationship of a man before his God. And now a wife that comes in and joins this man under a single calling. Somebody say single calling. It's not, even a, it's not even just that you're halves of calling. You have a singular calling that you join together. And this tallit, when you put it on four corners, it became something called a hopa. Everybody say hopa. hopa. The idea of a man being joined under his calling by one woman for one purpose. 
and the kids that would come thereafter are able to be seen under this tallit. What a beautiful picture. It's taken from Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. The canopy of God's presence over his people as he came down on Mount Sinai, as he came down to meet with them, as he came and gave them his, his ketubah, the, the very words that he gave that they might live and understand exactly how to live. This is a beautiful picture here. It's a beautiful picture that gives us clarity. There's not multiple callings that you're allowed to join. There's a, a calling that God has. And you are both working diligently to be able to do this. Thank you, guys. When you were thinking about the Ketubah, it's every written word that is in your Bible. When you were thinking about that Talit, there are 613 knots in the corners. Those 613 knots are with the 613 commands that are given in the Tanakh. The whole concept is that all authority comes from God through his word, and it first resides on the head of the household. And then God brings the head of the household an easer. Now together they can accomplish the commands of God where the household could not if they didn't. So they're married under it, symbolizing where their marriage would always flourish. Now, I don't know about you, but in our lives, those commands started with things that were very, very simple, like confront people about the realities of the kingdom. But they've grown in our understanding. Well, that's good, because we've also grown, and we needed a, a bigger hopa to stand under. And our family grew. And, and so did our understanding and our working together. These things grow together. And that's an important concept because what you do today is providing the foundational building blocks for everything that you will do in the future. Here's the last slide that we have for you this evening. And we wanna, want you to understand these building blocks that Pastor's just speaking about. You see there on the very foundational level, you've got to be able to deal with the flesh. You've got to understand the principles. You've got to be able to implement the principles of Abigail and Nabal. If you don't get this very first thing right, then the rest of what we're building is going to be faulty in your life. The instruction is going to be good, your execution of it, but we know that you guys are working and you're maximizing your marriages, and it's got to start with how you deal with the flesh. And then you begin to see and add to it. You begin to build onto it things about the vertical and the horizontal alignment between you and God, and therefore you and your spouse. It was that bullseye, that reticle that we were talking about. Uh, then, then we learned tonight, we added to that the principles of easership, a mutual force that's added so that you can both climb higher and achieve what God has for you. We learned about the direction of love, that gravity that love has that flows down from the heavens towards us, that it must flow from the husband down to the wife, into the children, and throughout, and it becomes reciprocated back. You learned about the cups of the Seder, the, be, the ability for God to say, I will do these things and then carry them out. It gives us the design that we must follow in the exact same way. We talked about the ketubah, those written instructions on both sides so that it can't be amended, abrogated, or modified in any way. And that hopa, that singular calling. See, these principles are not separated. This teaching for you because it is based in the word of God, because it's based on the understanding of what the entirety of the Bible says. These are integrated. They are building blocks and one builds upon the other. 
your picture of having your welder's mask that falls before your face to deal with your Nabal traits, to be able to see them, the right view of your spouse. These are foundational things that are going to continue to get built on in the weeks to come. It's important that we do more than just uh, become able to nod our heads to the, to, the, to the teaching, but that we're implementing these because they're building something into us. They are able to actually maximize your marriage and move you forward, not only for today, but for the generations. So this is not like grades in school where you complete the first grade and you move on to the second. It's not like a test in an academic setting, like, glad that's done. These are principles that you pick up and you never set down. They are always with you. After all of these almost three decades, we still work at every one of these every single day. And every time that we fail, every single time, it's related to one of them. So it's not a mystery. In that light, most of you that have been through marriage counseling, I know that uh, you have written love language before. <clears throat> it's time to do it again. It's time to improve what you did last time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're going to put homework for those watching online on a slide so you would see which messages you would listen to and stuff. But for this group tonight, write down Song of Songs the most excellent of all, all poems, the only book in the Bible dedicated solely to human sexuality. Song of Songs 5, 10 through 16. Ladies, you are going to read that. Then you're going to pray. Then you're going to put on both a merger of the dirt and the Spirit of God because you are a merger of the heavens and the earth. You're going to look at a book that is obviously written about human sexuality and a monogamous marriage, an eternal covenant. And reading that passage, you're going to personalize it to your husband. Okay? So this is not the Lord says you're like Jesus. He, he, you're like Jesus. Jesus. Engage the text. What is she saying and then figure out what you want to say to your husband. Because I promise, as much as he wants to be like Jesus, there are some other things that God put in the word to instruct you how to encourage and praise even your husband's physique, his actual appearance. Okay? Men, Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. You usually don't have to teach men to talk about their wife's curves. So the Bible anticipates what you do and don't need. A lady might need help learning to speak openly and honestly about the physical nature of her attraction to her husband. Men usually don't have that problem. Men usually have a different problem. Like, hey, dude, what do you love about your wife? She's so hot. Okay, well, that's really cool. What else do you love about your wife? Okay. Um, Proverbs 31, 10, or 31, 10 through 31 will teach you how to look at what she is actually doing and derive attraction and passion from what she is doing. 
It will even teach you, you to praise her publicly in a way that's appropriate. Amen. Amen. We want you to take that passage and personalize it for your spouse. We, we want that. And who knows, we may randomly choose you next week. Then again, we may not. It just <laughs> depends on how much you work on this. We love you so much and hope that you enjoyed this evening. We need an anointed man and woman to run to the front and close us in prayer. Oh, I love the way y'all did that together. That was like mutually forceful rising to the calling. Clear hold build. Amen. So, Father, we thank you so much for this teaching. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that this is a part of your divine plan and your purpose for our lives, Lord, and that this is where it begins. This is where it starts. Lord, before we want to do anything for you, Lord, we must be obedient to what you have told us to do in our home, with our wives, Lord, and with our children. Father, I thank you for the ease they're standing next to me. Lord, I ask that you would continue to maximize our marriage, Lord. Grow the revelation within us, Lord. Would you grow the revelation in each household, Lord, that they would pursue it diligently, mighty one. Lord, we give you all the glory tonight. God, we say that we want to please you in every way. We thank you for the responsibilities you've given us. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for those job descriptions. God, we say that we're going to cultivate the gratefulness in our homes. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We love you all.